Welcome to the Physical Therapy Network Podcast, a podcast for orthopedic physical therapists where we interview master clinicians about the research that has influenced their practice over the years and give you tips on how to apply it to your own clinical practice. We are the Physical Therapy Network. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ben Contino, current orthopedic resident, physical therapist at the Milwaukee VA Medical Center in affiliation with the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Today, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with our guest, Dr. Christine Neal, on the Physical Therapy Network. Good morning, Dr. Neal. How are you doing today? I'm good, Ben. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Doing great. Yeah, we're excited to have you on and uh, looking forward to what you're going to share with us today. Um, just as a starters, for our listeners, do you mind sharing a little bit about where you graduated from PT? Um, what certifications or specialty training you've had over the years um, and kind of where you are now? Sure. Yeah, sure thing. So my name is Christine Neal. I did my doctorate program at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I also kind of grew up in the Delaware, Philadelphia area. I did my undergrad there too. Um, And for a long time before my doctorate, I was a CSCS, which is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. I actually use that and kind of worked with clients throughout my DPT program um, and continue to do strength and conditioning with soccer players, which was originally my primary sport growing up and in college. Um, and then went through my doctorate, worked for uh, about six months in an outpatient orthopedic sports clinic before I started an orthopedic residency with Arcadia University, which is also in the Philadelphia area. Um, it was a hybrid program though. So it was kind of like every quarter we would go in and do an intensive like orthopedic weekend basically. Um, But everything else was virtual. And then in my clinic, I had a mentor who basically he was a running specialist, but taught me a lot of kind of the in-person orthopedic stuff too. So I I felt like I came out of that residency, even though I was, by the time I came out, it was a year long. I was about a year and a half out of school, but I felt like I'd accelerated my learning exponentially by years just doing doing an orthopedic I can't recommend it enough for any student that comes out of PT school and either even if you do feel like ready and and ready to tackle outpatient orthopedics or if you don't an orthopedic residency like being residency trained not only does it look really good on a resume but I do think it accelerates your learning and your just the quality of care you can give patients and that was kind of my goal with it too it's like I knew I could know more and I knew I could give higher quality care if I just like knew more and had more training. And so I I went out and did it. And I do feel like that's what I got out of it too. Um, And so that also got my, got me my OCS. And after that, I actually moved out to the West coast and Mm -hmm. started treating it still in an ortho sports orthopedic clinic um, with a company called ATI, but I treated more like the outdoor athlete. So Mm -hmm. instead of treating my classic, like lower extremity runners, um, a lot of ACL reconstructions is what I saw in like classic sports, like soccer, football, volleyball. Um, I started seeing more mountaineers and that's when I first started seeing rock climbers, hikers, backcountry, backpackers, right? So Washington was a really, really cool experience. Um, and then I just continued to grow. I jumped around a little bit more, moved to, I, I mentioned I moved to um, Minnesota started really having a subspecialty in climbers as well as continuing to treat my runners, both road and trail running. And, uh, and then after that moved to Colorado and now I'm primarily treating rock climbers and uh, trail runners. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the clinic that you work in now, both in terms of, you know, the setting, the population you're seeing? Um, Yeah, just give us the taste. 
Absolutely. Yeah, this is a company and a clinic I am super proud to be in. I, I work for the Climb Clinic. We are a uh, cash pay sports orthopedic clinic based in Golden, Colorado. Um, the owner and my colleague and a good friend of mine is Kevin Cowell. He, this was his brainchild and his baby for the past four years. And I've been with the company about a year and a half, kind of rounding up to two years and kind of classic cash pay. Kevin started it himself. He started in the pandemic in his garage and it just grew. We started off in a climbing gym. Um, in a small room in a climbing gym. And he brought me on because just like with cash pay, you start to hit a ceiling where you can only treat so much and you can only manage so much of a business, right? And so he was able to bring me on and the two of us together just really took off. And and we, the, the, our, our patient population, which is primarily rock climbers, exploded and people got really excited to come to see us. So we uh, were able to be so successful that we opened up a new kind of standalone location in Golden, Colorado, where... Um, we now have four therapists on staff um, and a, a kind of on-the-wall specialist, strength and conditioning specialist who is going to PT school, hopefully in about a year or two. But we have so five, five folks on staff, a four-treatment room clinic, two session boards in the clinic, a huge weight room there. It's been, it's been awesome to, to work in there. We're really, really proud of it and how far we've come with it. But, but yeah, so we primarily treat rock climbers. Since our expansion and because of more of my lower extremity specialty that I brought into the company, um, we're starting to see many more trail runners. We have another lower extremity specialist we brought in the company as well, and she's an ultra runner and a climber. So like, it's been cool to, to bring in some new PTs who are experienced and, and just excellent at giving high quality sports care. That's really neat. Um, certainly for our, our listeners who are interested in rock climbing, um, you guys have a strong presence on social media. Um, at least that's my impression. Um, so I, I was yeah. familiar with the Climb Clinic from Instagram, uh, but maybe maybe if you're willing to, maybe share your uh, handle so that folks can find the Climb Clinic on uh, your social medias. Totally, yeah. No, what's funny is I was aware of the Climb Clinic before I even moved to Colorado. Like I knew about Kevin, and then he kind of found me. But you can find us um, at the Climb Clinic on Instagram, and uh, my handle is um, at Dr. Christine Neal, and that's where you can find us. Thank you. Yeah, definitely check them out, guys. If you're interested in rock climbing or you have the potential to be treating and seeing those athletes, they've got some great educational resources, um, as well as just awesome people to look up to if uh, you're intrigued with that realm. Um, so, uh, Christine, please uh, share with us the research article that you're bringing to the table today. I'm excited to hear about it. I read it. Uh, but for our listeners, what is the article that you found impacted your practice the most throughout your years in physical therapy? Sure. Yeah. So when you, you, you gave me this prompt, I was intrigued because of course, like guys, anytime you go through PT school or an orthopedic residency, you have 10,000 articles downloaded and saved in your database. My suggestion is always keep everything, <laughs> hold on to all of it. You never know when you're going to lose your access. So hang on to it. Um, so I, I had to think on this one a little bit because interestingly, and I, I think this can apply to you is like, there was never one article that maybe like totally change the way I practice and arguably one random control trial shouldn't change the way we practice however unless it's more of like something that's that it's really really impactful but there aren't many out there like that but I, I wanted to pick a randomized control study for this specifically um, this article and it's called continued sports activity using a pain monitoring model model during rehabilitation in patients with Achilles tendinopathy. Um, and the reason being is this was a really, this was a pretty impactful article for me early in my career. 
And it wasn't an article I got from my uh, doctor program or my residency. This was actually given to me by one of my original mentors. And he was my mentor. He was my mentor through my orthopedic residency, uh, Doug Adams, but he was a running specialist, still is. He's the reason I became a running specialist. And of course, as a running specialist, we see a ton of Achilles tendinopathy. And it's probably one of the most well-studied tendinopathies too. Um, Karen Silvernagel is based at a University of Delaware where she does all of her research. And so she's, you know, her name's been brought up and hopefully for most people in their, their doctorate have been brought up for studies of Achilles tendinopathy. Um, and my brother-in-law actually was a, a uh, PhD under her as well. And so I got to stay super up to date on Achilles tendinopathy when he was going through his PhD too. So, um, so I picked this article, it is a 2007 article. So I wouldn't say it's like outdated because a lot of this still, still strongly applies, but it is an older article, um, but it is, I liked it because it's where they originally established some baselines for treating loading Achilles tendinopathies. Awesome. Yeah, that's neat. I'm excited to hear about it. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, main purpose of this article? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically the purpose of this study um, was basically to evaluate if continued running and jumping activity during treatment with folks who had Achilles tendinopathy um, was appropriate. And basically what they did was they had two groups and one group, because originally, really before this research was um, published, the main recommendation was like, all right, we, we've diagnosed you with Achilles tendinopathy. We want you to deload and rest for four to six weeks, right? And so this, and there's problems with that, right? So like, yes, it might decrease pain, but it also decreases function. It reduces the threshold at which that tissue can tolerate load in general, and then runners want to run, right? Like jumpers want to jump, athletes want to do. And so because of that, this is also quite a few weeks that we're keeping athletes away from their sport activity, which can reduce their ability to do that sport, right? Um, so what this, uh, what Karn wanted to do here, Dr. Silvermagel wanted to do was basically have two groups where one group was allowed to continue their Achilles loading activity, whether that be running, jumping, jump roping, playing soccer, whatever it was for the first six weeks of the, this protocol. And then the other group had to stop that type of loading activity. And not to say that they couldn't, basically, I, I believe these guys clear them to do like, you could swim, you could do like deep water pool running type of stuff, but, and you could walk, but you weren't allowed to like walk for exercise. You weren't allowed to run. You weren't allowed to like really load the Achilles much. Um, and the group that was allowed to continue their activity was only allowed to do it up to a, basically the pain monitoring part of this article was their activity could not go cause pain above a five out of 10 on the BAS score. So what was the main conclusion or what did they find when comparing these two groups, the kind of rest deload group to the, hey, it's okay to load, um, you're allowed to run, jump. What was their conclusion? Yeah, so this is where like, I, I like this article. And again, I was given this article by my mentor because as we were treating Achilles tendinopathies, I was really kind of trying to grasp, because again, we have some patients that still have high irritability with their tendinopathies and to an extent, some people do need to deload, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where this pain monitoring becomes super, super helpful. And so he gave me this article mostly because 
the conclusion was there there was no difference between the groups mm. and initially our reaction might be like oh man i was really hoping people actually got better when they could continue to load early on it would be great right but really what ended up happening is this is still really positive for for keeping people moving throughout their rehab because there was no harm done in allowing people to continue to run as long as their pain stayed below a five. There was no harm in letting them continue to jump and be active. And so the patient's quality, if we can allow patients to do that, their quality of life continues to go up and stay up, right? Um, it's, you know, it's not just about their physical tissue quality, but it's about their mental health and, and what mm-hmm. continuing to, to do their activity means, right? So what was cool is the conclusion was basically hey, there was really no significant statistical difference between groups. Both groups improved um, significantly, and and they tested these guys, and they had a baseline, um, and there was a baseline for, like, basically pain and function. So they did a VSA um, questionnaire, and and, and that was a baseline of, like, how is your function? And so they did find that function drastically improved in both patient populations, which is good. So it goes to show, like, you could rest a patient group and they could still do well um, if they're appropriate patient, but if they're a patient who really wants to move and not stop their activity, we can also say, hey, there is, it's not going to make you any worse if you continue to, to load too. Right. Um, but yeah, it was, that's what I think I loved most about this is it, it gave me, you know, data to show, hey, I don't have to stop my athletes. And that's mostly what I was working with is really active individuals. I don't have to stop them from moving. Yeah. And that's, I think, especially powerful or pertinent to people who um, derive a whole lot of joy and maybe even some purpose in life from the movement that they enjoy. And um, so that's extremely meaningful for those individuals to say, hey, I'm not going to tell you, you can't do the thing that you love anymore. You can do it as long as it's, you know, quote unquote, above that five out of 10, right? Um, Yeah. And five out of 10 is like not too shabby. Now, again, and this, I bring this up with patients too, when um, I'm, I'm educating them on this in the clinic and, you know, the, the pain scale is very subjective, right? And, and patients are going to be the first to tell you like, Hey, I have a really high pain tolerance. <laughs> I can go pretty high here. And the way I kind of, and, and sometimes I break that down and, and this isn't necessarily based on the research, but if I'm like, Hey, with the reason we, ch- I choose a five. And the reason we say a five out of 10 is like, around a five out of 10, we're probably changing our mechanics, right? Like we might start to limp, we, our brain might start to want to offload that limb. And, you know, that's where we need to pause. That's where we need to kind of stop and, and either find ways to load that are below that five out of 10, right? Um, but that's also where, at least clinically, I like to use modalities, right? Like mm-hmm. this article kind of says in the introduction too of classically, there's been, you know, a bunch of other ways to treat Achilles tendinopathy that are passive. Um, way back in the day, ultrasound was still a thing we were doing. Um, now we're, and, and electrical stimulation, I think there is some benefit to using like noxious stim to desensitize a little bit. So we can, so we can bring pain down a little bit with some modalities, whether that be manual therapy, whether that be noxious stimulation, and then we can go load them and pain is below that five, like perfect. We've done something to allow us to get to that loading parameter to stay below a five, right? right. Um, but I, I think what's cool is in, in current Silvanegger, she had already established a progressive loading protocol for Achilles tendinopathies that she had done previously, but then she brought it back for, for this um, article. And really in this study, this is something that hadn't been done in other, other tendon research 
before this point again this is a 2007 article so um every it's been established since then i think we're mm-hmm. we're basically no we're loading tendons at this point, right right, right. And tendons love to be loaded right but she um she was one of the first to do this in achilles tendinopathy where she broke it down into phases and and phase one was you know, double leg loading and then single leg loading. And then phase two is double single leg loading. And we're starting to do quick rebounding. So she's slowly progressing these patients back into plyometric activity. Um, and it's because we know that tendons, if, if we have a runner who's doing basically a plyometric, they're going to respond positive. Tendons love to be loaded that way too. Um, one thing I'll say about the patients in this study is they did purposefully exclude folks with attachment site tendinopathies. Mm-hmm. So these were primarily mid-portion Achilles tendinopathies. And, we, and it's because in previous studies, we know that those tend to respond the best to this type of load. So it's fair that they chose it. But I do want to put that out there where like, it, it, it does become a little bit more muddled. It becomes a little bit more different with the attachment site Achilles tendinopathies. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for bringing that to our attention. Mm-hmm. If you were um, maybe summarizing some of the ways that you've applied this to patient populations outside of specifically Achilles tendinopathy, um, what are some things that you've found over your years of practice? working with other yeah. types of tendinopathies. Totally. Well, that's uh, that's funny you say that because I think that's also why I picked this one. There is not a lot of research in the climbing world. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's out there, we haven't been able to build it up enough to be super high quality just yet. Um, when we have enough patients in a study to make it powerful, it's definitely not a random control trial. You know what I mean? So it's like, oftentimes it's like questionnaires we're sending out for injury rates. And so like, there really hasn't been anybody that studied tendinopathies um, extensively in climbers, but boy, do we see a lot of tendinopathies in climbers. Mm -hmm. And as you can guess, we primarily see uh, elbow tendinopathies. So wrist flexor and wrist extensor tendinopathies. Um, We'll occasionally see like a tendinopathy of um, the FDP in the finger, uh, just because of how much we load our fingers as climbers, but more often than not, we're seeing it in the elbow. And now what's great is there is quite a bit of research in, um, elbow tendinopathies out there much, much more in the past 20 years, which is great. And frankly, it's coming down to, Hey, we, we got to load these two, right? Like mm-hmm. load becomes really important. But then when you consider who were the patient populations in a lot of these tendinopathies, um, definitely varying a couple, you know, a couple articles have folks who were construction workers or developed elbow pain from excessive gripping activity with work. So more like the work comp folks. Um, Some were more like stagnant desk workers, uh, a lot of typing that can kind of lead to this too. In climbers, it's very different though. The type of loading and gripping climbers have to do is extensive. Um, And you can kind of relate it to the amount of load that goes through Achilles tendons in runners, right? Mm -hmm. And so how we treat it and how we load it really matters. And so while we can look at protocols that are out there for elbow tendinopathies, um, they weren't, they just haven't been sufficing when I first started working with with climbers, frankly, climbers needed more load, right? Um, so what I did is I pretty much followed a very similar article to what we have here by using a pain monitoring model mm. um, and not letting pain go above a five and basically utilizing much higher loads. So in a lot of the literature, I wouldn't even say the literature because they don't always out- outline poundage, right? Uh, they go by, by pain, but um, we're 
we're seeing people load the forearm with like two, three pounders and my climbers need 20, 25, 30 pounds, right? Um, to really even start to feel fatigued or pumped, but before they even start to feel any discomfort or pain. And what we know is like, well, but pain's okay. It means we're adequately loading that tendon and making a quality change. Um, what's interesting though, that this article doesn't outline, but we're, we found it more in later literature is that Sometimes we can have an elbow tendinopathy and there not be any like hypoechoic changes, which just means we're not necessarily seeing the quality of that tendon go from really nice striated tissue to being super jumbled, which we classically see in a lot of Achilles tendinopathy. Um, sometimes we don't see any of that in elbow tendinopathies, but what we do see is some extra nerve growth, some extra vascular growth, some increased like crummy vascular growth, some increased sensitivity in that area leading to increased pain. And so we're finding that we don't treat it any differently though. We just load the area, we desensitize it, we build up the threshold of that tissue and climbers can now start tolerating their activity a bit more. That's neat, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense that we would uh, you know, expect similar you know, uh, responsiveness to the same type of tissue in different areas of the body. Uh, but it's yeah. cool that you've experienced that on a you know, firsthand basis working with rock climbers and certainly other athletes as well. Um, mm -hmm. Christine, I'd like to uh, ask you about, you know, if you were giving advice to maybe a new graduate therapist or just a young PT who's getting their feet wet and uh, just starting out, what's one piece of advice you'd like to share with somebody early on in their career? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it would depend on their goals, but most students I've had as a CI and, and young individuals I've, I've worked with through residency programs, their goal is usually to to just give the highest quality of care they can. Um, <clears throat> some do wanna move on and try to get into cash pay. That's really common in Colorado, um, just because it's it can be tough out there in insurance-based orthopedics. Um, but really my best advice is actually to, to get the reps. And this is a, uh, not everybody agrees with me. And I think younger me wouldn't agree with me either. Um, as someone who has worked in really busy sports ortho clinics, I would sometimes see 15, 16 patients a day in an eight hour day. And frankly, that's, you know, that's not appropriate, but it's the world we live in sometimes in some states, right? And so because of that, like what I will say I got from that kind of retrospectively thinking about it now is I got so many reps. I got so many, like, I saw so many patients for the similar injuries where I got very, very good at managing different types of injuries, right? So, like, imagine someone, we have 20 patients who got ACL reconstructions. All 20 might respond differently to treatment. And, and what those reps get you is enough experience to know how to manage, you know, a tough knee or a tough ankle or something that's not responding yeah. post-op the way that it should, like, how are you going to intervene and get them back on track? And so I do think the reps are really, really important. Um, my hope would be our profession can find a way to allow new grads to, to be in that world and not be drowning. Right. Okay. And I think, I think there's a way to get the reps and learn a lot and, and not, not want to, you know, be frustrated within the first year and a half, two years of their career. But I do suggest like getting the reps is so, so important if you want to treat at a high level orthopedically, because mm. um, it's not just about, you know, it's great to read the research when you don't have the experience, read literature, read, 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 right. Um, and then as you gain the experience, you can start leaning on that. But 
if say you wanted to get into our world of, of specializing in climbers, there's not a lot of literature to lean on, right? So mm. I'll be honest, like the reason we've been so successful and Kevin and I have talked a lot about this, but like both of us are, were very experienced orthopedic clinicians who went through residencies, he went through a FAMP, so he was fellowship trained. And we have applied concepts from our um, experience to treat climbers and we're just finding out it's working well, right? <laughs> so we weren't, yeah. we're not able to lean on the research as much in this particular situation, but, but yeah, that would be my suggestion is like getting the reps. I think it's going to, it's going to be a lot easier and there's going to be a lot pre less pressure on you. If, you, if, if um, a clinician does want to get into cash pay, if they feel like they have experience to lean on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christine. That's some really valuable advice uh, for myself and I'm sure a lot of others as well, given that, um, I think early on, you're right, you know, you're, you're looking for all of the ways that you can improve the care that you're able to provide. And sometimes that just means more practice, give it time, yeah. trust the process, the more patients you see, the more comfortable you're going to be and the better you're going to be at treating things and more efficient as well. So 100%. Um, thank you again, Christine, for coming on today. We've really appreciated what you've had to share and, uh, it's been awesome to learn from you. Um, this has been an episode of the PT network podcast.